you sad girl study guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This week, we'll be covering the oh-so-scandalous times of Charles II of England. But wait, what about Oliver Cromwell and the Commonwealth? Well, Oliver Cromwell makes me even more depressed than words can describe, and it's my podcast, so on to Charles II. I feel like I should be taking a shot just to get in the mood, but I'm nothing if not professional, and I do record this podcast at 9am, so I'll be content with the strongest cold brew that Amazon can provide, and I'll save the booze for later. In a history class, Charles II is that restoration guy in the big wig, if he's mentioned at all. But oh boy, is he ever a doozy. The highlights of his study guide include a yacht, hiding in a tree, and a truly inspiring amount of sex. Let's begin. The man who would one day be Charles II of England is born May 29th, 1630, at St. James Palace. He is the second of Charles I of England and Henrietta Marie's nine children and the first one to survive childhood. He's known for being a very healthy baby, a reputation that will continue throughout his life. Even as a child, Charles is distinct looking. He has dark hair and a dark complexion, which makes sense given his Italian ancestry. As a result of this dark complexion, his political enemies will call him the Black Bastard, which is problematic on so many levels, although in the 1600s, microaggressions aren't really a thing. He considers himself to be very unattractive because he has a large nose and a large mouth, although, as we're going to see, he doesn't have that much trouble pulling in the ladies. Also, Charles II is going to be real tall. Even by the standards of today, he is huge. By the time he is an adult, Charles is around six foot two inches tall, although I have read some sources that put his height at six foot six, which I personally find harder to believe. Charles has a fairly happy childhood. Neither of his parents are that strict with him, so as a child, he's known for being very friendly and very spirited, by which we mean he gets into quite a few scrapes, especially when he's supposed to be sitting quietly in church services. However, since Charles is the heir to the throne of England, no one's going to give him that much trouble. There is a slight bit of tension as Charles starts to get older and he needs tutors. The king and parliament are feuding over who gets to decide who teaches the heir to the throne of England. It's all part of the tension that's building up to the civil war that I discussed in the Charles I episode. However, as far as we know, baby Charles II has no idea that these tensions are developing until 1642 when he's 12 
in the English Civil War breaks out. Charles stays with his father during the Civil War. He ends up being named Commander of Troops in 1645 when he's 14, which is just such a great idea. I don't know about you guys, but when I think about who I want to lead my army, it's definitely a horny 14-year-old. Charles spends the next year in England with his dad, but by 1646, it's really clear that the royalist forces are not doing great. So Charles I sends Charles out of England for his own safety. It's going to be a real hot mess if the heir to the throne gets captured by Parliament. Charles first goes down to the Isle of Jersey, which has massive amounts of royalist sympathy. While he's in Jersey, Charles most likely has his first affair, and then he goes off to France. While he's in France, Charles hangs out at the French court and meets his cousin, Louis XIV. Throughout Charles's life, he and Louis are going to have an interesting relationship. While Charles is older than Louis, Louis is really going to be the dominant one in the relationship. A few years later, in 1648, internal unrest, known as the Fronde, breaks out in France, and Charles is like, eh, I already had to deal with internal unrest in one country, don't want to deal with it again, and he pieces out of France to the Netherlands, which makes sense because his little sister Mary is married to William II of Orange, who's running the Netherlands. It's while he's in the Netherlands that Charles has his second affair with a woman named Lucy Walter. This affair leads to Charles's first illegitimate child, James. For the rest of Charles's life, there are going to be rumors that Lucy and Charles secretly got married, which would mean that this child, James, is secretly legitimate and should be the next king of England. As far as anyone knows, these rumors are fake, but they're going to cause quite a bit of trouble. Throughout all of this, Charles is going to be pushing the leadership of both France and the Netherlands to get involved in the unrest of in England, to invade England, and to save his dad from Parliament. These attempts go nowhere, neither country wants to get involved, and Charles I ends up getting executed on January 30th, 1649. The execution of his father is really upsetting for Charles, but it does mean that he is now technically King of England. About two weeks after his father's execution, the Isle of Jersey names Charles King. A few weeks after that, Scotland also offers Charles kingship. However, Scotland offers Charles kingship with certain conditions, and Charles isn't quite willing to meet all of those demands. Also, he doesn't just want to be king of Scotland. He wants to be king of England, too. Charles thinks over the offer. He consults with his main advisor, this guy named Edward Hyde. And remember the name Edward Hyde. It's going to be important later on. And by June 1650, Charles and Scotland reach a decision. They sign a treaty, which allows Charles to be king of Scotland. And he lands in Scotland two weeks later. 
when Oliver Crummel hears the news that Charles is now in Scotland, he is, unsurprisingly, not thrilled and promptly invades Scotland. As it turns out, Charles maybe isn't the best military leader because within a few months, Cromwell has beaten the Scottish army and has taken over the Scottish capital of Edinburgh. But Charles doesn't really let that stop him because, say what you will about Charles, the guy is an optimist. On January 1st, 1651, Charles gets crowned the King of Scotland at the traditional Scottish coronation site of Schoon. It looks like scone, as in the delicious snack, but it is actually pronounced Schoon. And as soon as he's crowned King of Scotland, Charles decides to invade England. He thinks, as I march through England, the people are just going to join me because everyone hates Parliament. And yeah, Oliver Cromwell isn't exactly the most popular guy in England thanks to the whole war on Christmas, war on theater, but people don't actually join Charles's ragtag army. As a result, Cromwell and his forces are really easily able to defeat Charles. Charles suffers a major defeat at the Battle of Worcester in September 1651, and Charles is forced to flee to avoid falling in to Parliament's hands. As he's trying to escape, he gets lost. It looks like all is lost, but then he ultimately is rescued by a local Catholic family, the Penderells, who help disguise Charles. They have him hide out in an oak tree overnight, which becomes part of the whole dashing Charles legend. After a few more scrapes and grand adventures, Charles does ultimately manage to escape England by October 1651 and head back to France. He then spends the next eight years bouncing around between France and the Netherlands looking for help. Charles is in a bit of a weird social position because, yes, he is a king, but he doesn't actually have a throne or any money, so none of the other European monarchs are actually willing to fully commit to helping him. Honestly, if you're another European monarch, why would you help Charles? It's just going to be really expensive for you, and honestly, having a weak England is super helpful. As a result of this, Charles just has to wait it out and see what's going to happen next. As he's waiting it out, and honestly, most likely having a bunch of affairs with various court ladies, he's also having a pretty tough relationship with his mother, Henrietta Maria, who felt like he didn't do enough to save his father. Because of the rough relationship that Charles has with his mom, he's always going to have interesting relationships with women for the rest of his life. He loves women, as we've established. Charles loves having sex, but from an emotional standpoint, it's always going to be a little bit questionable. But finally, in September 1658, Charles's fortunes start to change because Oliver Cromwell dies and gets replaced as the protector of England by his son, Richard Cromwell, who is utterly incompetent. Pretty quickly, Parliament starts turning on Richard Cromwell, and yet again, England is faced 
with internal unrest. I'm not really going to go into a ton of detail about the fall of Richard Cromwell and said inter internal unrest because that isn't what this podcast is about. Once again, if you want more details, I would highly recommend season one of Mike Duncan's Revolutions. But what matters is by May 1659, this guy, George Monk, who had been Parliament's viceroy to Scotland, takes control. And as it turns out, Monk had been on Charles's side unofficially. He's quasi-royalist. He thinks that maybe we should bring the king back. Monk marches to London in the winter of 1660, convinces Parliament to dissolve itself, and calls a new Parliament. This new Parliament decides to bring back Charles as king, and Charles ends up arriving in England on May 26, 1660, on his brand new fancy boat, the Prince. As soon as he gets back to England, the first thing Charles does is go to an Anglican church service at Canterbury before returning to London on May 29th, 1660, aka his 30th birthday, to streets full of cheering. While the whole deciding to bring Charles back thing was being decided in the spring of 1660, Charles actually had technically gotten engaged to a Dutch princess, Henrietta Catherine of Orange Nassau, the sister of Charles's brother-in-law, William II of Orange, but the engagement fell apart while he was making his way over to England, and she ends up marrying someone else. But that's okay. Charles is going to marry someone else as well. Also, right before he gets to England, Charles picks up a new mistress a woman named Barbara Palmer. The two will have at least five children together, the first of whom is born literally nine months after Charles becomes King of England. So we know how he celebrated becoming king. As a quick recap of Charles's life up to becoming king, he has a happy childhood until the war breaks out. Once the Civil War happens, Charles flees to Europe. After his father dies and Charles is now technically King of England, he tries to mount a comeback via Scotland. It fails. He hides out in an oak tree, escapes back to Europe, bounces around, has a lot of sex, waits for Oliver Cromwell to die, and then comes back to England in glory with a brand new mistress. Charles is now King of England. Everyone is super excited after the disaster that was the Commonwealth in Richard Cromwell. So let's see how Charles is going to do as king. Even before he's officially king, Charles is getting involved with policy. In April 1660, he signs the Treaty of Breda, which promises religious tolerance. Religious tolerance is going to be a huge thing for Charles, and spoiler alert, religion is going to be a major issue throughout his reign because, as it's going to turn out, his little brother and heir, James, the Duke of York, is going to end up becoming a Catholic. Great job, James. Because of this, Charles is going to have some personal sympathies towards the Catholics. Also, remember, his mom was a Catholic. And Parliament, on the other hand, is very, very anti-Catholic. 
As a result of this, Charles wants a slightly more inclusive Church of England. He wants there to be toleration for Catholics. Neither of those things are going to happen, but it's going to be something that Charles is going to push for throughout his reign. Once Charles is firmly on the throne, he's going to start by trying to soothe over some of the tensions that remain from the Civil War. I don't want to phrase this. In Cromwell's time. Remember that letter that Charles I had sent him about not taking revenge? Charles II is really going to keep that in mind. He's going to do this thing called the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion. These acts say that there's going to be a general amnesty for everyone involved in the Civil War, except for those who had been directly part of the regicide, i.e. those who had signed Charles I's death warrant. That's why we only see the execution of those who had been directly involved in his father's execution and not widespread execution of people who had fought for Parliament. Charles also recognizes changes in land ownership which had happened as a result of the Civil War. Yes, it does make royalists who lost land very angry, but by recognizing the new status quo, Charles is able to make the vast majority of the English population pretty happy. The last thing that Charles has to deal with in regards to the Civil War is the army. Because remember, by the time that Charles I had been executed, the army has an overly large amount of power. They were the ones who had gotten Parliament more and more radical through, to their, through their habit of purging moderates. Charles needs to remove the army from political power. He does this in two ways. One, he raises a poll tax to pay soldiers so they're not going to be angry, and two, he bans soldiers from assembling in London and forces them to retire to civilian life. This works. The soldiers are tired of fighting, and most of the population is tired of having soldiers running around. The army is now sidelined. They're no longer going to threaten the king or parliament. Once all of this is taken care of, Charles is able to be officially crowned in April 1661. It's all very exciting. He has a huge, lovely coronation. Everyone is cheering him. Yay, Charles. Now that he is officially crowned king, he's able to once again turn his attention to those pesky religious issues. We still have that issue of Catholics, extreme Puritans, and the Church of England. Charles decides to focus first on the Puritan versus Church of England issue. The solution that he and Parliament come to is forcing Anglicans to conform or lose their rights. Parliament and Charles does this through a series of acts that are also known as the Clarendon Code, named after Edward Hyde, aka the Earl of Clarendon. The Clarendon Code is made up of three main acts, the 1661 Corporation Act, which says that political leaders have to be Anglican and swear an oath to the king, which removes nonconformists from positions of political power. We have the 1662 Act of Uniformity, which says that ministers have to be okay with the Book of Prayer and removes Puritans from positions of religious power, and the 1664 Convecticle Act 
which says that religious assemblies of more than five people that aren't members of the Church of England are illegal, which prevents large groups of nonconformists from gathering. Charles is also going to attempt some sort of Catholic toleration with the 1662 Declaration of Indulgences, but Parliament is going to utterly nix that. So while we do have some progress in terms of dealing with the religious issues, we're not going to see any religious toleration. Charles calls Parliament for the first time in 1661, and this Parliament is going to last a really long time. It's going to go until 1679 without new elections. And while Parliament and Charles are definitely going to have their little spats, they're going to work fairly well together. Because thanks to the whole Civil War thing, the king has now lost some inherent powers. We don't have the Star Chamber, the Treasury is completely independent from the king, and the king most certainly cannot raise money without Parliament's consent. That being said, the system is still very much based on patronage, so the king still does have quite a bit of power, but the entire thing is a much more equal than it had been before the Civil War, and they are going to work decently together. Yes, they are going to feud over the whole religion question, especially once James, the Duke of York, becomes publicly Catholic, but we're never going to have Civil War level fights. In 1662, Charles gets married. His wife is Catherine of Braganza, who is Portuguese and Catholic. The fact that Charles marries a Catholic is not exactly popular in England, but there are three things that Catherine brings to the table that slightly smooths things over. One, a ton of money. Two, territory in the East Indies to help England counter the growing power of the Dutch. And three, tea. That's right, we can thank Catherine of Braganza for introducing England to tea and through that causing the American Revolution and allowing me to be where I am today. Thanks, Catherine. Catherine and Charles have a fairly friendly relationship. They apparently get along decently well. While they never have any children, they do care about her. Apparently, when Catherine almost dies during a miscarriage, Charles is fairly worried about her health. That being said, Charles is aggressively unfaithful to her. He loves having sex, and he loves having mistresses. He has a ton of mistresses and about 14 illegitimate children. That is a rough estimate. We really don't know how many illegitimate children Charles has. It's a fun game for geneticists to figure out. At the time of his marriage to Catherine, Charles has two main mistresses. Barbara Palmer, who I already mentioned, she is known as Lady Castlemaine. She has a reputation for having quite the nasty temper and for sleeping around with men besides her husband and the king. And then there's Frances Stewart, who's known for being really beautiful, really stupid, and the model for Britannia on English coins. Once Charles is married and king, he really quickly gets bored of the actual work of ruling. Turns out he hates doing 
paperwork, and he's going to have his ministers do everything for him. Early on in his reign, the main minister who's going to be doing stuff for him is Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon. Edward Hyde, as we remember, had been the guy guiding him during Charles's exile, and now Edward Hyde is also the father-in-law of Charles's younger brother, James. Edward Hyde is very royalist and very conservative, so for Charles's early years on the throne, that's going to be the policy. In 1663, Charles does something that kind of shocks everyone. He makes his first illegitimate child, James, the Duke of Monmouth. While it's not uncommon to make your illegitimate child some sort of noble, making them the Duke of Monmouth is pretty big. This suggests that maybe Charles is planning something for Monmouth's future. It kicks off those pesky rumors that maybe Monmouth might actually be legitimate and Charles might have him be his heir. These rumors are going to keep spreading for the rest of Charles's reign. And just as a side note, from here on out, I'm going to be referring to James, the Duke of Monmouth, as a Monmouth to differentiate him from James, the Duke of York, Charles's brother. So when you hear the name James, that's going to be the Duke of York, aka Charles's brother, and Monmouth is just Monmouth. In 1665, a few years after the whole Monmouth thing, Charles is really going to start off his foreign policy. When it comes to foreign policy, the big question is going to be, will England take the side of France under Louis XIV, or is England going to ally with the Dutch? Charles is always going to lean a little bit more towards the side of the French. He's going to really admire his cousin, Louis XIV. Remember, Louis XIV had helped him while he's in exile. Louis XIV has all this money. Louis XIV is Catholic, and Charles has sympathy for the Catholic, etc., etc. Also, Charles feels like he can use Louis XIV's money to circumnavigate Parliament and Parliament's pesky demands. Also, one of Charles's favorite new mistresses, whose name I'm really about to butcher, Louise de Penacoy de Corriai, is a French noblewoman. So there are a lot of reasons for Charles to ally with the French, and he does. He and Louis end up declaring war on the Dutch in 1665. This war, which is known as the Second Anglo-Dutch War, starts out really, really well for the English. We have a huge naval victory for the English in June under the command of James, but by August, the Dutch are doing really well. Never go against the Dutch on the sea. The Dutch will win. This war really quickly starts hurting English trade with Europe and becomes extremely unpopular. And then, in 1666, Louis stabs Charles in the back and signs a treaty with the Dutch. France declares war on England and takes control of some English colonies in the Caribbean. In response to this, Charles's mother tries to arrange a peace treaty between the English, the French, and the Dutch. This fails. 
In response to the failed peace treaty, the Dutch Navy sail up the Thames to Chatham and burn the main ship of the English Navy in what's known as the Raid on the Medway. There's a really great movie about the raid. It's called The Admiral. It's in Dutch. It's available on Amazon Prime. You stream. You have to buy it. You can also stream it for free through, like, sketchier means. It's up to you if you want to break the law or not. I would never condone illegal activities. Anyway, the raid of Medway is super embarrassing for the English because the Dutch have now sailed up the Thames. After the raid of Medway, the English and the Dutch end the war with a treaty, and as a result of this treaty, England has to give up their holdings in Indonesia, but in exchange, they get New Netherlands, aka New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. From a modern perspective, that's a pretty good exchange, but in 1667, it's a huge scandal. Edward Hyde is seen as responsible for this mishap, and as a result, he's forced out of power and into exile in France. With Hyde out of power, Charles now needs some new people to do all the paperwork for him, and he gets five new ministers who are going to be known as Cabal, because their initials are literally C-A-B-A-L. They are Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley, and Lauderdale. Really, the only one you need to remember is Buckingham. He is the son of our old favorite, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, and is quite a bit more competent than his dad. The main thing to remember about Cabal is all of them are pretty corrupt. They're not very unified when it comes to policy. Their main goal is to help themselves, but Charles is willing to keep them around because they do the paperwork that he doesn't want to do. After the whole setup of Cabal, Charles and England are going to face a series of disasters that frankly would have destabilized a lesser man. But Charles is not a lesser man. He's tall, he's commanding, he has a great wig, and both he and England are going to survive. First up, the Great Plague of 1665, aka the last time that the Black Death hits England. Ultimately, over 100,000 people die of the Black Death until it ends in September 1666. But why does it end in September 1666? Do the people of England suddenly create a vaccine for the Black Death and eradicate it? No. The reason why the Black Death suddenly ends in September 1666 is because of the Great Fire of London, which starts on September 2nd, 1666, when a bakery chimney catches a flame. The Great Fire of London lasts for three days. It's so huge that smoke can be seen from 50 miles away, and it ultimately leaves about a quarter of a million people homeless. It destroys swaths of the city, including the famous St. Paul's Cathedral, and it looks like this could really destroy the morale of London. But it doesn't. One, Charles himself battles the fire and sort of becomes a rallying point for the people of London. It's like, Oh look, the king's fighting, so should we. Once the fire's put out, Charles puts this guy, Christopher Wren, 
in charge of rebuilding parts of the city that had been destroyed. And it turns out Christopher Wren is really, really awesome at rebuilding stuff. And lastly, turns out the city gets rebuilt really quickly and in a much better way than it had previously been built. So instead of destroying the morale, the Great Fire of London sort of makes everyone a lot prouder of London. We get a new rejuvenated London. Then in 1668, we get what's known as the Body House Riots in London, which is a super fun moment in London history. Basically, a bunch of young men in London, aka board apprentices and students, start looting and destroying brothels across the city. Basically, these young men are angry because the government is cracking down on their religious beliefs while letting technically illegal brothels operate out in the open. These young men are like, hey, if you're going to be hypocritical, we're going to fight back. And they do so by attacking the brothels. In the process, they also attack James, the Duke of York, who by now is known to be Catholic, as well as the very unpopular Barbara Palmer, Lady Castlemaine, because her sex life is oh so scandalous, and when in doubt, attack a sexual woman. The last big disaster in this time period is more of a personal disaster for Charles. In 1669, he makes a secret deal with Louis XIV. He tells Louis that he will convert to Catholicism, join forces with Louis, and attack the Dutch in exchange for a ton of money. At the time, his ministers and parliament have no idea about the secret deal. And when it later comes out, everyone is more than a little bit annoyed. James is like, oh yeah, Charles definitely converted to Catholicism. He was Catholic from 1669 until his death, but it's unclear if that's the case. James, who really is the worst, is famously full of shit. Whether or not Charles converted, this scandal is going to cause quite a few issues down the line. However, by about 1670, England is starting to pull itself out of all of these various disasters. Trade is booming. English ha England has the largest merchant fleet in Europe. The American colonies are doing great and are contributing to said booming trade, which allows us to get in to that fun restoration culture. We have those giant wigs, those fancy ornate clothes, and all the fun and scandal and coffee that comes from the restoration. So let's quickly talk a little bit about restoration culture. This is really going to be a quick overview. I could go on for years about restoration culture, but I'm going to do it as quick as possible. Under Charles II, we're going to see a boom in writing. We're going to have poets like Dryden and Pope, diarists like Pepys, and playwrights like Aphra Ben and William Wetcherly. These plays, known as restoration comedies, are going to be all about sex and wit and double entendre and other fun things. It's sort of a slap in the face to the Puritans, who, as we recall, had banned theater. It's going to be exuberant and fun and very sexy. For the first time, 
women are going to be allowed to act in public theater. And one of the most famous actresses of the time, Nell Gwen, is going to be one of Charles's favorite mistresses. I love Nell Gwen. She's great. And she is famously known as a Protestant whore. Because one time, she's out riding in her carriage, and she gets confused for either Barbara Palmer or Louis' French mistress, whose name I honestly can't say, and people are jeering at her, and she sort of sticks her head out, and she's like, my good people, you confuse me. I am but the Protestant whore, and the angry crowd erupts into cheers. I mean, how can you not adore her? It's not all just fun and humanities, though. Under Charles's reign, we're also going to see an eruption of STEM, because as it turns out, Charles II is a horny STEM nerd. He's a huge patron of science and is weirdly obsessed with clocks. He has seven clocks in his bedroom alone, so he can, like, fiddle with them and learn more about how they work. In 1660, Charles founds the Royal Society to promote scientific learning and advancement in England, and it's going to be wildly successful. We're going to see huge steps in science in England in this time period. It's the scientific revelation, baby. Let's do some science. Let's invent the scientific method. Woo-hoo. It's a quick overview of some of the science that we get in this time period. We have guys like, like Robert Boyle, who suggest the shocking idea of actually doing experiments and testing hypotheses and not just guessing randomly. We have Richard Lower, who comes up with the idea of blood circulation and transfusion. We have, a, we have astronomer Edmund Howley, who Howley's comet is named after. We have Robert Hooke, who invents the microscope. And last, but certainly not least, we have Isaac Newton, who comes up with the theory of, who comes up with the laws of gravity, who figures out who light works, and who, much to my displeasure in high school, basically invented physics and calculus. Isaac Newton is a beast. He is the awkward gay virgin of math and science, and he's doing it all during the reign of Charles II. Charles II's reign isn't all high-minded achievement in math, science, and art, though. He's also doing things to make him popular with the average guy on the street. He builds race courses at Newmarket and is actually going to race there himself in 1675. He builds the Royal Hospital at Chelsea, which makes him super popular with the average guy who, every so often, needs to get that weird cut on his arm checked out. He's going to be the first king to have a yacht known as the Royal Escape, and I hope to God that Charles had a ton of truly epic sex on the Royal Escape. Charles is also going to have the first newspapers in England. The Public Intelligencer and London Gazette started during his reign. It's during Charles's reign that we see the start of coffee house culture. Basically, we're going to have guys hanging out in coffee houses, talking, aka arguing, about the news. It's basically Twitter, but face-to-face, -face, over a ton of espresso. Just as much fake news and memes, 
but you actually have to talk to people in person. Gross. In 1672, Charles jumps back in to his love of France and hatred of the Dutch with the Treaty of Dover. Charles claims that the Dutch have been harassing British traders and personally insulting him, so yeah, we totally have to fight him. Louis XIV was like, yeah, I totally agree. Also, I've been wanting to invade the Netherlands for God knows how long. Louis XIV invades the Netherlands, and I'll go more into detail about that invasion in the William and Mary episode. It's pretty epic. The Dutch do end up winning after a self-flood. Meanwhile, the English are fighting the Dutch at sea, which goes very well for the Dutch and very poorly for the English. As a result of this, English public opinion flips, and Parliament refuses to fund the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Louis is like, yeah, I'm not going to pay for this war either. I'm a little bit busy right now, in a classic Louis fashion. So Charles is out of money to fight this war. As a result, he's forced to go into negotiation with the Dutch. We get a peace treaty between the Dutch and the English, and this peace treaty will end up leading to the marriage of William and Mary. Once again, I will talk about this in much more detail in the study guide about William and Mary, aka my two trash faves. This isn't the only issue that Charles is facing by the early 1670s, because in 1673, Charles's trash bag little brother, James, is openly Catholic and is married to a new Catholic wife. This is causing some serious political tensions because James is Charles's heir due to the whole Charles not having any legitimate children. Yes, James does have two daughters, Mary and Anne, who are both firm Protestants and will be James's heirs, but the fact that the king's heir is a Catholic is making a lot of people pretty unhappy. In an attempt to make his brother happy, believe in freedom of religion, Honestly, I'm not really sure what Charles was thinking. I mean, yes, religious toleration is all very well and good, but know your audience. Charles says that Catholics should be allowed to worship privately and that Anglican Protestants should get total freedom of worship. Charles does this without Parliament's permission, and Parliament is not happy about this. Remember, laws about religion can only be changed by Parliament. Charles apologizes. He's like, oops, yeah, misstepped, mobby, but it's not enough for Parliament. In response to all of this, and mostly to get back at James, Parliament passes the Test Act. This says that anyone in public office has to swear an oath of allegiance to the king and say that they put the king before the Pope. This means that Catholics can no longer hold government office. As a result of the Test Act, James has to step down as the head of the Navy. Also, the C from Cabal, Clifford, has to step down because Clifford was a Catholic. The fall of Clifford creates a little bit of a power vacuum within Cabal and allows this new guy, the Earl of Shaftesbury, to step in. The Earl of Shaftesbury is super anti-James. He hates 
Catholics, and he's going to ally with Buckingham, who also doesn't love Catholics. The two are going to become opposition leaders within the government, and their goal is going to be to restrict the king's power and do whatever they can to keep James from getting any more power. Their main opponent in all of this is going to be this guy, the Earl of Danby, who is going to be Charles's main ally in the whole drama. Danby, Danby suggests that members of parliament should take an oath saying that resistance to the king is illegal, which is going a little bit too far. Everyone in parliament is like, uh, that is called an absolute government, my friend. No, no, no. So by 1675, we're having a real, we're having a real power struggle between Danby, Shaftesbury, and Buckingham. And to make matters worse, Charles keeps postponing the meeting of Parliament. Tensions are building. Everyone's like, oh no, is Charles going to pull a move like his dad? Then in 1676, Charles shuts down. London's coffee houses. The coffee houses are where opposition MPs have been meeting when Parliament isn't in session. And Charles is like, if I close them down, the opposition won't have anywhere to meet and they'll stop talking shit about me. It fails. There's a huge outcry in response to this. And the outcry is so big and so violent that Charles gives in after 10 days and the coffee houses reopen and everyone's able to drink their espresso and talk shit. My cold brew is really good, by the way. Finally, in February 1677, Charles agrees to reopen Parliament. Buckingham kicks off this new Parliament by overstepping. He says that Charles had broken the law by forcing them to wait this long. He says that the triennial acts were wrong. Three years is too long for Parliament to wait, because according to Edward III, Parliament has to meet every year. This is a huge insult to the king. Charles II promptly sends both Shaftesbury and Buckingham to the Tower of London to cool their heels for a bit. With them out of the way, Charles and Danby are able to push through a fairly royalist agenda, and not that much happens. The big thing that's going to happen for the next year or so is the marriage of Charles's niece, Mary, to William III of Orange. I'm going to go over this marriage once again in much more detail in the William and Mary study guide. But basically, the William and Mary study guide is meant to ease tension and please everyone. It's supposed to help make some sort of treaty between England, the Netherlands, and France. This fails. Louis refuses to sign on to this treaty, but we do get a strong alliance between the Netherlands and England, which is going to hold true until mm, the 1700s. The peace isn't the peace within England isn't going to last all that long because in 1678 we get a fun conspiracy theory: the Popish Plot. This random street preacher named Titus Oates which really is the best drag name of all time, claims that there is a Catholic plot to kill Charles and put James on the throne. There's really no proof of this plot, but a magistrate is chosen to investigate. And then the magistrate who's investigating turns up 
mysteriously dead. It's enough to spark huge fears of a Catholic French invasion. As a result of these fears, over 24 Catholics are executed for being a part of this plot. Also, five nobles and the queen herself are accused of being in on the conspiracy, although they're not executed. The popish plot has huge political ramifications. Shaftesbury and Buckingham are allowed out of the tower to deal with the plot, and they lead a committee to investigate. They take advantage of the committee to try to keep James off the throne once and for all. Parliament passes a new Test Act, which goes even further than the first Test Act. It excludes Catholics from Parliament in addition from public office by saying that all Catholics must swear an oath of supremacy to be MPs in addition to public office. In response to all of this, as well as the craziness over the popish plot, in 1679, Charles calls new elections to Parliament for the first time in 18 years. It doesn't go well for him. This new Parliament is extremely anti-royal power and is led by Shaftesbury and Buckingham. In response to this new Parliament, the Archbishop of Canterbury asks James to convert back to Anglicanism just to appease everyone, and James is like, fuck, no, fuck you guys. Charles looks at his little brother, realizes he's causing a lot of drama, and is like, hey, maybe you should visit your daughter and her husband in the Netherlands and lay low for a bit. The new parliament kicks off in 1679, and it's with this new parliament that we get two cool new political terms, Whigs and Tories. Whigs comes from the Scottish term Whigamore, which stands for Scottish Presbyterians. The Whigs are going to be anti-royal absolutism, they hate Catholics, and they want to get rid of James II. They're going to be led by Shaftesbury and Buckingham. The Tories, which comes from the Irish term Torah, which refers to Irish Catholic rebels, are going to be pro-royalty. They don't mind the idea of James becoming the next king of England, and they're going to be led by the Earl of Danby. Members of Parliament are either going to be Whigs or Tories, we're not going to see a whole lot of moderation. And in 1679, the Whigs are going to be in control. They're going to be passing a lot of laws to protect themselves and the English people in case James ever gets to the throne. And this is going to lead to what's known as the 1679 Exclusion Crisis. Parliament's going to attempt to pass a law that straight up blocks James from the throne. Charles refuses to sign it. Parliament attempts to pass it again. Yet again, James refuses. Yet again, Charles refuses to sign it, which creates a bit of a crisis because what do you do if Parliament's passing something and the king refuses to do it? Pretty soon, rumors start spreading that Charles is going to get around this by legitimizing Monmouth and making him become king. Monmouth adds fuel to this rumor by going up to Scotland to fight in a campaign against rebels and gaining himself a lot of glory. 
Monmouth is super popular, he's handsome, he's putting down a rebellion. Oh my gosh, he would be the perfect king. Charles says, yeah, no, Monmouth is not going to be the next king. He even signs in public a document saying that Monmouth is definitely not legitimate, but even that doesn't end the rumors. And then in August 1679, Charles almost dies. This leads to major fears of a power struggle between Monmouth and James. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, if Charles dies, we're going to have a fucking civil war. This doesn't happen. Both James and Monmouth return to London to wait on Charles. No one tries to rebel. Charles gets better. Monmouth goes to Holland and James goes up to Scotland. It shows that in the moment, at least, people are fine with the concept of James being king. Once Charles gets better, he calls for new parliamentary elections. And once again, the Whigs have a huge majority in Parliament. Charles isn't thrilled about this Whig majority, so he refuses to let Parliament sit because they're so against him. Once again, not the best decision, Charles. Shaftesbury creates a petition to let Parliament sit, and there's a huge march in London to pressure Charles. Monmouth even returns from Holland to put pressure on his dad. Charles isn't pleased about this whole thing, but eventually he lets Parliament come into session. As soon as Parliament comes into session, they pass a ton of laws that would put a ton of limits on James if he ever becomes king. Charles begrudgingly exists, and Parliament's like, will hail, we have the upper hand. So we're going to suggest the exclusion bill yet again. And Charles is like, yeah, I'm not going to remove my brother from the law of succession. So he dissolves Parliament and starts relying on loans from Louis XIV to run the country. By March 1681, Charles recalls Parliament yet again. He has a brand new compromise about the whole James thing. He says, look, James is going to be king whether you like it or not, but he won't actually have any power. There'll be a regency, and this regency will be James's daughter, Mary and Anne, because Mary and Anne are both Protestants, their husbands are both Protestants, James will just be a figurehead, a figurehead king. Everyone happy? Parliament's like, no, we're not doing this. Charles is like, fine, fuck you guys. He dissolves Parliament and will rely on loans from Louis XIV for the rest of his reign. However, Charles feels like Shaftesbury and Buckingham are still to blame for all of this. He starts excluding them from public offices and puts Shaftesbury on trial for disobeying him. However, Shaftesbury lives in London, and London is very, very pro-Whig. So, when Shaftesbury goes on trial, he gets acquitted. Charles is furious about this. His attempt to punish Shaftesbury didn't work, so he starts looking for ways to limit London's power. This makes Londoners very angry and leads to plots against Charles. The most famous plot against Charles is the 1683 Rye House plot. Basically, the plan is to blow up James and Charles while they're at the racehorses and put Monmouth on the throne. 
William Russell and Algernon Sidney and the Earl of Essex, some high-ranking politicians, are involved in the plot, and all of them die as a result. Russell and Sidney are executed, and the Earl of Essex dies in a mysterious suicide while the plot is being investigated. Since Monmouth is implicated in the plot, he gets banished from court and goes to Lilo in the Netherlands, which is going to have some pretty big ramifications. After the Rye House plot is discovered, the last years of Charles's reign are going to be fairly peaceful. He's going to use the power of the judicial system and the threat of execution to get his way, as well as money from Louis XIV to run the show. In early 1685, however, Charles is going to suffer a pretty bad attack of gout. His larger-than-life living finally catches up to him. On February 2nd, Charles starts to suffer convulsions, which is never good news for anyone. He briefly gets better, but then starts having fits. In the evening of February 5th, 1685, Charles takes Catholic communion and then dies of a stroke on February 6th, 1685. He dies surrounded by all of his illegitimate children, minus Monmouth, who is off in the Netherlands. Apparently, his last words or him worrying about what will happen to his beloved, now Gwen, after his death. He is succeeded on the throne by his brother, James, the Duke of York. Charles is buried in Westminster Abbey. So, for those studiers who like bullet points slash recaps more than a big long study guide, here's the quick recap of Charles II. Charles II had a really happy childhood until the Civil War when he had to flee into exile. After Oliver Cromwell's death, Charles gets back the throne of England in 1660. His reign is fairly peaceful. We don't have a second Civil War, thank goodness. The main drama that's going to face down Charles II is religious drama, thanks to his brother, the Catholic James. Charles and Parliament is going to feud over whether or not James should be the next King of England. Charles is mostly going to bypass Parliament, which is now divided between Tory and Whig, by getting loans from Louis XIV. Despite this drama and the giant fire of London, the situation in England is going to be pretty awesome. We're going to have the fun restoration culture with an explosion of art and science. Charles II dies peacefully of disease, setting up the reign for the Catholic James II. Charles is best known for his truly epic sex life, which I think is what he would have liked. Next time's study guide is going to be on James II, aka my least favorite king of England of all time. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty biased. Sorry, not sorry. As always, the entry music for the podcast is Let's Take an Old Fashioned Walk by Billy Murray and Ada Jones. The podcast has social media. You can check us out on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod. If you want to look at some dank memes, the podcast has an Instagram at SadGirlStudy. You can email us at SadGirlStudyGuides at gmail.com. And we have a Patreon at Sad Girl Study Guides at patreon.com. Patrons at the $5 tier at the $5 a month tier or above get access to bi-monthly tangent casts. And if you donate $10 a month or more, 
you can vote on the tangent cast topic. The next tangent cast will be on either restoration comedian and spy Afriban or well-known diary writer and cheese lover Samuel Peeps. So donate and have your say. As always, the best way you can help the podcast is by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on either Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. So please do that or else I'll be sad. Thank you.